I am a real believer in sort of young talent and if you throw someone in at the deep end, obviously with lots of support <laughs> to like make sure they don't drown, um, it's amazing what people can achieve mm. and never to like kind of make assumptions about what someone can or cannot do, like let them give it a go and take some risks. This is The Summit by Fields Adventures. I'm David Nunes and every week, my co-founder Dominic McGregor and I will be talking to inspirational leaders about their experiences as they strive towards their summit. Thanks for joining us here at The Summit, Fields Adventures' podcast where we talk to amazing leaders of companies that are building fantastic brands and products. Today we're joined by Pippa Murray from Pippa Nut, who has built an amazing FMCG business over the past eight years. Thanks yeah. for joining us, David. Thank you so much for having me. Talk to us about when you came up with the idea, mm-hmm. when it was. Just give us that little story about how you came, came to the idea of doing this. Yeah, so we've been going about, well, we've been training about eight years yeah. now, um, but wow. I came up with the idea two years before that. So almost 10 years have been something that I've been sort of focused working on. I came up with the idea, and I guess context, my background wasn't actually in food and drink at all. So I was working as a theatre producer of all things. Wow. Um, had only really just got into my career, so I was 24 at the time when I sort of first had the idea and and really didn't have a business bone in my body whatsoever. Um, had no idea what FMCG was or stood for, frankly, but very much thought about it from a kind of problem that I saw as a consumer and, and a product that I loved and consumed uh, regularly but saw a gap in the market. So, you know, at the time I was doing um, lots of kind of marathon running. In fact, I was running the Paris wow. Marathon that year and... It was kind of during some of those long runs that the idea started forming. And for me, as someone that was interested in fitness and health and and obviously a keen runner, I was always looking for kind of food that would fuel kind of my training. And nut butters and peanut butters are brilliant, a source of good protein and good fats and energy. So it's something I I went to a lot. But back then, nearly every single product that I picked up in store was filled with palm oil, which is one of the biggest forms of deforestation, as well as also not being that good for you. But also just really, really processed. Mm. And I think over the last 10 years, there's been a real transformation of food these days. Like there is more kind of natural brands on the shelves in terms of ones that you don't use ingredients you wouldn't recognize. And I think I really wanted to be part of that movement at that time, sort of thinking about how can you bring sort of better for you options to people's tables. And in, in this case, make a really natural, delicious product. Doesn't kind of feel like a sacrifice in any way. Um, and yeah, I think the brand itself like was a real opportunity. The space was very dusty, and I think with food and drink, you either trans like create a whole new category. I don't know. You do what coconut water does, or you look for a dusty space in store and and look at how you could disrupt it. Maybe the brands that have been there have become, become a bit lazy, and that's the opportunity to bring in something fresh and new and and better for consumers. So yeah, that was like the sort of kernel of the idea, I guess. And and it took about two years to get the brand up and running out supply chain raise the money do the product development and and then and then we got going we listed in selfridges that was our first customer um, and we've built it since then wow okay <laughs> so many questions okay <laughs> so going back so you were you were, you were in theater production yeah and you saw a gap in the market yeah and you, did you know anything about food technology or no. who was the first person you called that's such a good question i think i think before I jump into that I think one of the things that is actually sometimes a real advantage is to like come at something without any preconceived conceptions of what completely it should or should work like and I guess it's that kind of first principle thinking where actually question everything partly because you literally have no idea what you're doing but yeah who is it like called I mean I had a couple of people who worked in food and drink brands at the time that were mates from university 
I think they were like my first port of call to kind of think about. Uh, let me ask you a few questions about how it works in food and drink. My second one was at the time I was also really obsessed with markets and like you know and I live in London have have done so since university and um, at that time like food truck world was really kicking off the likes of Curb um, really great food truck company were were there and you know you had markets popping up all around London lots of independent little brands popping up in those sort of spaces and so rather than necessarily asking or going to lots of people I did start quite physically in terms of I literally made my product in my kitchen developed the different flavors and recipes I'm a real foodie um, at heart so and and just very practically got going with some very basic branding and some product that I'd make literally out of my kitchen and I sold at Maltby Street Market down in South London for a few months and that was like my learning ground and I guess through that you start because but the act of doing and putting yourself out there I think inevitably it also means that you start to organically build your network a little bit more you start to see brands that you really think are amazing and you think oh could I try and get like a half an hour phone call with them so it's a bit of a mixture of like, who do you know, who do you want to know and therefore put yourself out there. And then I think there is a real, particularly in, I guess, a product-based business, you do have to be quite, I think you have to be quite active. And if you can, like markets are like such a great way to test and learn when you have zero experience whatsoever. Um, so that was like, I think some of the things that I, I thought about. Did people love your first products or was it like, oh my God, this is awful? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the people, so I did a bit of road testing okay. ahead with my like, friends and family and there definitely were some dodgy flavours and it took me a bit of time. I think for things like sourcing like good quality nuts as an example, yeah. like figuring that out or working it through. Uh, but by the time I got to like market stores and I was actually like, you know, it was a product that yeah. I was selling. Maybe not something you'd find in a supermarket, but it was, it was good for what it was at, at that stage. That actually was what gave me the confidence to carry on because I got people coming back week on week. Um, people gave me really great feedback immediately in that moment, which wow. you could then pivot your recipe a little bit. Um, so I think actually it, it gave me confidence to then say, okay, I'm going to figure out how to scale this up and make it a commercially scalable product and look at manufacturing and actually get into the real detail of like, how does a food and drink brand work? And when you started on the market store, was it just, I, I want to do this for me? And, or did you actually have an ambition at that point to make this a big brand? Or did that, did that come slightly after once you had that kind of mm. feedback? Yeah, I always, I think when I was thinking up the business, I always wanted it to be a brand that you'd find in supermarkets. Yeah. So the market store was just a real stepping stone to get started. Okay. It was a friend of mine who ran a charity at the time was like, Pip, you just need to get going. He'd yeah. said that to me and I was like, okay, well, I will physically literally get out the door and do it. Um, but when I thought about the impact that I wanted to make, I think one of the best things about running a business is that um, you have a platform that you can help drive change through, whether that's through your product, but also in the way that you do business. So, and you really, you only, the bigger your brand gets, the more impact you can have in a positive way, hopefully. And so I always wanted to be found in people's covers up and down the UK and, uh, and further afield as well. So that was always front of mind when I was thinking about how I was going to set up the business as well. And then, yeah, going back now eight years, mm. you know, we meet so many entrepreneurs today and their ambition is they create a product they want to see on the supermarket shelf, right? That's, yeah. that, that's kind of the, when they walk into a room, that, that's the thing they say. Do you think it's easier or harder now, eight years later, if you were to start again, you're mentoring a budding entrepreneur who's just created another kind of interesting um, FMCG product, what would you say their route should be to get onto the shelf of a supermarket? It's such a good question. It's something I do toss up mm. in my mind, even when I think, well, what would, if I would do another business, would it be harder or easier? Um, 
I think there's a few things. I think the current climate makes it hard. Um, however, whenever there's any disruption, you know, whether that's COVID or right now we've got, you know, inflation and cost of living crisis, naturally some businesses will fail, but it will leave gaps and opportunities for uh, new ideas to emerge. And, and, and so in some ways, I think when it's a little bit unsteady like it is at the moment, even though it's quite difficult to, from a product perspective when you've got inflation yes. <laughs> hitting your supply chain, it does leave room and opportunity, if that makes sense. So in some ways, I think that's a really great opportunity if it, uh, because almost you know, the ones that do get on the shelves are probably going to succeed better because they've had to start up in a really challenging time. So yeah. they have to have great margins from the get-go or they do have to make sure their product is generally needed because people right now are being really selective about what they buy. So I think maybe make sure that the right products do get out there in the world. Um, and I think right now what's brilliant is that there is such a community and I think it has been really for the last 10 years it still continues and it, it just amazing sort of burgeoning group of SME sort of food and drink startups which are incredibly open and there's a kind of pathway to kind of you can speak to other businesses two years in front and you can really kind of get their help and assistance and there are lots of organizations that help and support startups in that early stage and and obviously you've got things like SEIS and EIS that help and crowdfunding that really democratizes you know finance so there's so many benefits I think but I think certainly if you're starting up a food and drink product right now, like being very conscious of the climate, you're, you really need to make sure you're solving a problem, that there's a genuine need. You're not just doing another and me because that won't get, you, you won't get consumers seeing the value and the benefit in your product. You have to offer something different so you can offer a higher value product, if that makes sense, or a product where people see more value in it because you're solving or improving upon something that is in the market, if that makes sense. If it is just replicating, then nobody's going to pick it up over an existing brand that they're already familiar with. That segues nicely into my next question, which is about mm. brand. Yeah. And, you know, building a brand uh, and in today's world is really tough, right? Standing out, getting your message across. I know you just spoke there about being able to kind of articulate why your product's different or what problem it's solving. How did you do that? I mean, was it, did you, was it a slam dunk? Was it really easy and clear to say what problem you were solving? Or did, you, did that iterate over time? And how did you stand out on shelf? I guess from the get-go, I always yeah. had a, a problem in, in mind, a re- really intrinsic in this particular product. But it ha- does like broaden and become a bigger kind of purpose for us as a business. And I think I didn't have like a really beautifully articulated purpose that I had from day dot in all of my pitch decks and stuff. It actually was something that came three years in, and it was sort of the small team that I had at that time that we were like, right, I think it's time that we like figure out. Yes, we all kind of know why we're here, but let's really articulate this. So that did come a bit later. And, and now it's really about, you know, creating products that people absolutely love, that do them some good from a health perspective, that are light on the planet as possible. And, and that's our sort of why I do what I do. But in terms of um, articulating and how you actually make sure that comes through when people are buying a product, like, I think if you're going to invest your marketing money in anywhere when it comes to food and drink, you, you invest it in your brand and your packaging. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, most people are just like sleepwalking through their shopping, you know, especially right now, people literally go into supermarkets with a list and say, this is what I'm going to buy. So you do have to be disruptive on shelf. And so working on making sure that your brand cuts through from, a, you know, you know, both making sure you're communicating the right thing at, at shelf, but also that it has like a standout is, is just so vital. It will pay back yeah. time and time again. And then really always 
from the beginning and but it still applies now as we're a bigger brand really focusing at like where can you invest your marketing spend as close to shelf as possible and then sort of slowly work out as you get bigger and bigger but you know at the at the beginning it's so simple like getting if your product is amazing tastes delicious and really your job is to try and get as many people to try it as possible so whether that's sampling at shelf to doing events in and around kind of london to making sure that you're sending out product to influencers to get them to talk about your brand and, and again, raise awareness about why that other people should buy it. You really try and as, as much as possible, like do as close, much of that close to where you're already, yeah. where your distribution is in an ideal world um, and then work outwards from there. We see a lot of companies uh, that have started in one channel. So maybe they have a great direct consumer uh, yeah. base and they're trying then to get into retail. Yeah. One of the big things they all struggle with hugely is cash flow. Yeah. Because going from a system where, you know, they, they basically get paid as soon as they sell a product mm. to a whole new world of, you know, paying suppliers up front all the way through to being paid by retailers, in, in, you know, in a long time in the future. How did you, how did that stunt your growth or how did you manage that? Yeah, I actually don't think this gets spoken about enough in mm. terms of how do you actually manage that back end? Because the way you set up your business will really enable you to drive growth and and you know be able to go for it or to your point like really stem it and I think there are like some really basic principles around making sure your supply chain is set up effectively so that you're not having to pay for goods up front which is often what people have to do um, when they're building those first relationships with those factories but it comes back to like spend time don't rush the startup bit where you're just getting the foundations laid spend time nurturing and finding the right partner from a manufacturing perspective as an example who believes in your brand enough to give you even some short payment terms mm. that means that you're not going to be hamstrung every time you have to raise an order to pay for it up front. Um, so, you know, in an ideal world, you get 60-day terms. That might not be possible. <laughs> but, like, you know, trying to work on, like, what what can that look like? And, and ultimately, that's what I mean when spend time sort of, you know, kissing a lot of frogs because eventually you will find the right partners that will actually support you and give you a li- maybe a little bit of rope to to go after and and similarly this is where you have to be really mindful about how you build your distribution and you don't want to knock down you know turn down tesco if they do start knocking on your door which is unlikely they don't often come (laughs) knocking but sometimes they do um but just being really mindful about how you build your distribution it's it's better to like sweat one store than have 500 that aren't working very well like for us in in say sainsbury's you know 80% 80% of our sales will be coming through the top 100 stores out of the 800 yeah. or 700 that we're listed in. So just because you have loads of doors open and your products on shelf, although it's good for awareness, it doesn't actually mean it necessarily will sell more. So build your brand through your distribution. So, um, for instance, we started with the likes of Selfridges, then we went into Whole Foods, then we started to dip our toe into retailers like Ocado and Holland Barrett and and it was only until the back end of our first year that we got our first national retailer, which was Sainsbury's. And, and really, we worked for Sainsbury's for two years before we went anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And we got more breadth and depth of distribution in that store. We could have gone far and wide with, you know, as a Tesco Morrison's, but you end up just having to cut your marketing budget over all of those different areas. And to your point, like, all your cash gets tied up in a, in a, in a more complicated sort of yeah. chain. So... Yeah, being really mindful about the terms you agree up front with your supermarkets and your um, your manufacturers, but also be conscious about how you build it. But look, 
there have been some moments, and I do specifically remember with Sainsbury's when we sent in our first load of products into that particular retailer. And I remember we were down to like five quid in the bank. Yeah. Like it, there were some really sketchy times. Moments, and yeah. so I don't know if there's an inevitability about that, which doesn't sound hugely, irres- ir- sounds a bit irresponsible. <laughs> but yeah, like I think that's kind of part of like that kind of risk that you are always going to be slightly straddling, that it's not going to be perfect. You have to accept it. Just be mindful about the choices you're making as you're building your brand. So in terms of your own personal journey, we're mm. talking about, you know, reaching a summit. Do you, what is your summit? Are you there yet? Are you past it? Are you on the way up? What does it look like? From, I, it, when you get there, what will it look like? <laughs> um, I find that a really difficult question, actually, because I always think the nature of, like, um, being an entrepreneur or, you know, anyone running a business is that, you think that when you get to it, like for me, when I started off, I was like, well, if we just get into Waitrose, that'll be like job done. Like I can just go home after that. <laughs> so that's the dream. Um, and then like as soon as you start to realize the potential of your brand, you start to stretch that goal even further and further and further out. And I think in, when I was younger, I often used to think much more in terms of revenue. Like yeah. when I get to this revenue goal of X million, that's when like I'll be like nailed it again, can go home or whatever it is. But A, I found that really difficult over time when either we've had a year where it's been a tough year and we haven't hit our but some of those goals. And actually thinking about what kind of business I want to be res- like responsible for creating in this world today, it, I've completely rethought how I think about success and what I think about the summit as an example. So Pippinut's a B Corp, so that's a business that thinks about the triple bottom line on equal footing so people planet and profit and really in the last sort of three to four years are kind of what what kind of impact from a sustain sustainability but also a social perspective we want to make has really shifted for me if i look back in five years time i'd i want to make sure that pipnut is a brand that is leading the way when it comes to environmental and social responsibility like i want to be that poster child we might not be the biggest brand out there but i want to be an example for other businesses that you don't just have to drive growth at all costs and really you should be thinking about really conscious capitalism when you're thinking about your product and your brand. So if I think if we can really embed that in our company and deliver upon some of the goals that we've got in, in our brand around things like net zero and thinking about how we can make sure that our packaging is responsible and we're doing interesting work from an agricultural perspective, that for me makes me really excited um, because I think we're going to have to completely transform the way that businesses, particularly um, physical products that have a, such a big impact on the environment, like, you know, climate change is, is happening. So, yeah, um, yeah that, that's for me I would feel proud of if we're still around doing good work and making really great products for people um, true to our values. And that's, that's, that's success. I mean, on the opposite side of the coin, obviously every journey is a roller coaster. You know, we just spoke about <laughs> when there's no money left and when it's all gone amazingly well and everything in between. Has building a business been a personal sacrifice to you? Mm. Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, I mean, most of my 20s, so I started, the idea was 24, the business launched when I was 26. And most, in fact, my entire sort of mid-20s and early 30s has been consumed by this company. Mm. And when I think about sometimes when you level yourself up to like maybe your friends or university friends, whatever it is, you know, you, you, you're always, well, I certainly have been a few steps behind on a, from a personal perspective, whether that's really sort of basic milestones like, you know, buying a flat, which is obviously a privilege in itself. But things like that, I think you always put, you know, other people first in front of you, like even just basic stuff like what you pay yourselves. Most people in my company 
or, or even now still to the day, still get paid more than me. And, and that sort of, I guess, literal sacrifice that you're making in the view that in the long run you're, yeah. you're investing in, in a brand and a business that um, is, is going to be a success. So I think that, that does. And, and I think ultimately, um, over time, you do start to set better boundaries around your work and your life. But it, I actually always think it's just that lovely mix that is kind of what is running a business. You never really have a clear boundary. But I do think you do get better as you get more mature in your company about not just being busy for the sake of it, which I think in the first couple of years, I was just 24 hours busy working yeah. on it. And then you realize that like, you're just really ineffective and inefficient. And I don't know if that's just the natural way of hustling. It's yeah. just the way it is. But um, inevitably, I think you get better now, I think, about being more like conscious about, well, what do I also want to achieve in my personal life and trying to think not just solely about like work. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I've necessarily cracked it yet, though. Journey. It's a journey, I think, for sure. And what would your team say about you? I think they would say that I um, I try to be a very autonomous, a sort of, uh, you know, democratic and let, like, from an autonomy perspective, let people run with things and yeah. not to crowd in too much. I think, I think there's something about when I, because I started up my company literally with no kind of appreciation or understanding of what I was doing, but you learn a lot by doing and, and getting us and making some mistakes and getting yourself out there. I am a real believer in sort of young talent and, and really sort of, if you throw someone in at the deep end, obviously with lots of support to like <laughs> make sure they don't drown, um, it's amazing what people can achieve. Mm. Um, and never to like kind of make assumptions about what someone can or cannot do, like let them give it a go and take some risks. And I think, I hope that my team would say that I let that happen in, in, in Pippa Nut and yeah, and that I create that kind of flat culture. They'd also probably say I'm very of humble i do get that quite a lot i do downplay a lot of um either our success or or the or my success um so yeah i'm not not one to jump on top of a table and say <laughs> look at me so I'm, I'm probably in lots of ways when i thought about entrepreneurship or, or um leadership i'm not a normal kind of what i thought a leader was yeah um you know, I'm not an in, a complete introvert, but I definitely straddle the introvert-extrovert spectrum. And so that took quite a while for me to, like, figure out, well, I'm not a kind of Richard Branson kind of leader. Definitely. And so um, I think they'd probably say that I'm a, a quieter, but perhaps less out there person, but still lead in my own way, if that makes sense. It's fantastic to hear that. Cause I think, you know, I, there's a lot I think about diversity of leadership skills, mm. you know, especially in the, in the investment community, people expect a leader to be a certain type of yeah. sort of outgoing bounces into a room, you know, everyone kind of looks up and goes, wow, you know, uh, actually I think really true leaders are, are you know, there's, there's lots of different type of leadership qualities. And from the investment mm. perspective, we need to appreciate that more. Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah. And I think as well, like, you can be very loud and like, take up a lot of space in a room, but I think good leadership is letting other people be heard and and actually listening uh, yeah. more than you're speaking. And I think that can be a real asset. If like, of course, you do need to be able to stand up in front of people and be confident and sell in your purpose and make sure everyone's really clear about the direction. But it doesn't mean you have to be like bullish and kind of really alpha in your approach. Yeah. So. I like to think it gives space for other people to like actually 
be even better and to yeah. like level themselves contribute. up yeah, yeah and contribute so I but I do agree I think there is a profile that is perhaps looked at and I think perhaps that comes from also just the lack of diversity in itself in some of that that world that you're speaking about amazing well thank you very much Pip for uh, joining us today thank right. you absolute pleasure being here thank, thank you, you. Thanks for watching this episode of The Summits. We've been joined here by Pippa Murray from Pippa Nuts. It's been amazing to hear about your journey and your stories. And especially for me, I think the most interesting piece was this, learn when to say no to retailers, you know, and that was really, really eye-opening for us. Um, If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like it, please follow it, please tell your friends. And if you think of anyone we should be interviewing on the podcast, please let us know. Thank you.